Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 and 41. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Please be seated. When Father Ben sent me to preach this Sunday, it was prior to the election, and we both felt that regardless of the outcome, we would all benefit from a reassurance that Christ is the King. Little did either of us know that even two weeks on, there would be deep division in our nation and community about what the outcome of the election actually would be. In the face of such uncertainty, whether you believe it to be well-founded or not, it is doubly important to remember that Christ is King. As the church has set for us to remember with this week's lectionary readings and collect. The lectionary this week asserts two truths which the world is uncomfortable with. And even some who claim the name of Christ seem uneasy about. The first truth is that Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and all authorities on earth rule at his pleasure and are subject to his commands, regardless of the apparent lawlessness they exhibit in the present. It is from this truth that our right relationship with earthly powers and authorities is discerned. For the Christian, it is right for us to hold an expectation that our leaders will do justice and show mercy and walk humbly before God. It is right to desire that they will have the spirit of wisdom and charity and that they would faithfully serve in their offices to promote the well-being of all people. We hold these expectations and desires out of the fervent prayer that through obedience to the commandments and laws of the King of Kings, we may show forth thy praise among the nations of the earth. In our society, authority is granted by the will of the people via free and fair elections bounded by our constitution. Part of our right relationship with the authority in our country is to uphold the results of those elections, even when we are disappointed by them, perhaps especially when we are disappointed by them. It is because of the ultimate kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ that it is critical for Christians to ensure that they are not caught up in power politics, which exacerbates and leads to lawlessness. <clears throat> the second uncomfortable truth is that the Lord will judge the peoples of the earth and indeed all the creation. There will be those who are blessed and accepted into the presence of God in the kingdom. There will be those who are accursed cast out of the presence and into the fires of hell. This concept of judgment and the truth of hell is uncomfortable for many Christians and is especially distasteful to the world which views all truth as relative. 
Such a world rejects the authority and legitimacy of any power that would seek to declare an objective right and objective wrong. C.S. Lewis wrote that if there was one Christian doctrine he could fervently wish was not a doctrine or open to revision, it would be that of the last judgment and the punishment of the condemned by hellfire. This has led to many falsely saying that Lewis rejected hell as a Christian doctrine. But wishing something were not so is not the same as saying or believing it not to be so. In the end, Lewis affirms the doctrine, not because he agrees or wholly understands it, but because it is part of the truth revealed by Jesus. To Lewis, to reject one part of the truth casts all of the truth as malleable and negotiable. For Lewis, the truth is true because the king speaks it. One of the first things that stands out to me in the parable in today's gospel lesson is the parallelism between the justified and the condemned. In both the case of the sheep and the goats, each will go to a place prepared by God. The sheep inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. While the goats are cast in the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The judgment is not happenstance, but, pers but purposeful. The righteous go to be with the Father and dwell with him as was originally intended from the beginning. The wicked go to be with their father. Having chosen his ways and his enticements, they share in his punishment. The parallel continues with the sheep being acclaimed for a litany of righteous deeds and the goats being rejected for their lack of righteous deeds. It is important to note that the goats do not seem to go out of their way to do especially despicable things, nor do the sheep seem to do things that we might think are all that heroic. Indeed, both the sheep and the goats express surprise at their respective judgments. The sheep exclaiming that they never directly rendered assistance to the king, and the goats pleading that they never injured the king through their inaction. Both are answered the same way. The sheep learning that their righteous works for their brothers and sisters were done for the king, while the goats find that their injurious neglect of their fellows was inflicted on the king as well. Finally, both sheep and goats depart from before the king, the wicked goats going to their condemnation, but the righteous sheep into eternal life. The concept of judgment should not be new to us, nor would it have been new to longtime disciples hearing this parable for the first time. I preached to you over the summer about the weeds and the wheat, which is another parable where judgment features prominently. Part of Jesus' earthly ministry was to proclaim this coming judgment so that both the wicked and the righteous would be prepared and no one would have any excuse for their lack of preparation. Almost all of the parables telling about the coming judgment are preceded or followed by those telling the hearers to be ready and stay alert. As an example, the parable of the sheep and the goats and the final judgment is preceded by the parable of the ten virgins. The surprising thing about this parable then is not the judgment. Instead, it is the criteria for judging. 
Christianity is hardly the only religion with a concept of a final judgment. But it is the only faith that I am aware of where judgment hinges on neighborliness. Other beliefs extol heroism and condemn cowardice, demand rigid law-keeping, or reward inner peace. These might produce neighborliness as a side effect or a fringe benefit, but they are not the core point of judgment. Instead, the sheep are judged righteous because they exhibit a neighborliness that infuses their character such that they are surprised when it is the evidence that leads the judge to rule in their favor. The goats are judged wicked because their mercilessness is so ingrained that they do not dispute that they were merciless, just that they were not merciless in their mind to the person of the king. I say that neighborliness as the criteria for judgment is surprising, but this is only so for those who have not been paying attention to Jesus. What is the summary of the law? Is it not, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself? Is it any wonder then that failure to keep the second is the same as failing to keep the first? Is it truly a shock that the deeds which declare the sheep righteous are the deeds of mercy that we should expect of good neighbors? It is this realization that for me satisfied the inevitable tension that arises when we consider that it is not works that save us, and yet faith without works is dead. In reading this parable, we may at first glance see this as an argument for a works-based salvation. Are the righteous not saved for their deeds? Are the wicked not condemned for their lack of deeds? These are both true in part. Again, pay attention to the responses of the sheep and the goats. Both are surprised that the deeds, done and undone, should have any bearing on their judgment. For the sheep, it is because acting mercifully and neighborly was part of their character. Just as for the goats, the lack of these things demonstrated significant deficiencies of their character. It may seem that this realization leads to the straightforward application of being neighborly and merciful to everyone. I would agree with that so far as it goes. However, I think that there are some applications that may not be as obvious as literally giving a cup of water to someone who is thirsty, or literally feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, or visiting the prisoner and the sick. Most of us, I think, would agree with taking those literal actions. Where the application may take an unexpected turn is in how we apply it when we are not directly faced with a literal person who is sick or imprisoned or hungry or thirsty or naked. Does the expectation of merciful neighborliness get put on hold? Do we simply console ourselves that surely we would show these literal mercies if ever personally presented them? Certainly not. There are people all around us who are hungry and thirsty for things other than bread and water. Much of Jesus' ministry talks about himself as the true bread or the source of living waters. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
Sharing the gospel is a way to give relief to those who are materially provided for but spiritually destitute. This could mean sharing the gospel through a long conversation or by your testimony. Or it could be as simple as showing compassion in fleeting interactions. Being kind and honoring to everyone so that if and when they find out that you are a Christian, that interaction may make them that much more inclined to receive the good news readily. By contrast, providing a bad witness through hypocrisy or evident selfishness and self-centeredness is at least as bad as withholding bread and water. And I think it may actually be worse. If I gave a thirsty or starving person bread and water that was perfectly clean and healthy to eat, but made it seem to them that it was poisonous and polluted, would that not be despicable on my part? Do you think that I would be numbered with the goats? This past year, we have heard from many of our brothers and sisters in Christ about how they feel marginalized in a society that claims to be free and open for all. I hear and read about many of our Christian fellows who are in emotional misery as surely as if they were bodily racked by some dread disease. Visiting the sick in the literal sense is to place oneself in proximity with disease and to sit with the person who is hurting. Visiting the soul sick can be as simple as mourning with those who mourn to allow yourself to be afflicted with them. The contrast is to pass by dismissively or to insist at every turn that they have nothing to mourn over. If I go over to the house of a sick person and demand they serve me as a guest because they are not that ill, do you think that I will be considered blessed? You can also draw other parallels between the physical needs from the parable and less obvious spiritual or emotional needs. The ones I've given are examples. With consideration, you may be led to others. The point is that there are always ways in which we can fulfill the needs of others or fail to fulfill them beyond the literal provision of physical needs. The work of loving neighbor is something that never fails to present opportunities if we follow the Spirit's leading. Today is the last Sunday of the season after Pentecost. Next week, we will begin the preparatory season of Advent. As we look forward to the next liturgical year and the next civil calendar year, which starts a few weeks later, take this week to examine your heart and your responses to those in need. If you find that you struggle to know the right thing to do, or simply struggle to be moved to do anything, pray for the Spirit's leading and direction. Additionally, it appears likely to me that the political situation in our country is probably not going to get any less contentious. This is an especially important time to remember that no matter what goes on with the earthly authorities, Jesus is king. If we feel our loyalties divided between what someone in our preferred political party is asking of us and what Jesus and the church asks of us, Remember that Jesus is King. Grace and peace to you all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.